But last week was, uh, I don't know, it was, it was encouraging. I, I you know, didn't get through all that I wanted to. We talked about chapter 20, but um, Paul you know, uh, gathered the Ephesian elders to meet him in a town called Miletus. He didn't want to meet in Ephesus because he was worried about, um, and, and this is kind of things that we'll infer, Luke doesn't say why, um, but last time when he left Ephesus, you know, that there was a mob that kind of gathered and some difficulties, and so he didn't want to meet with them there. He didn't want to spend too much time there. We know that. And so he meets in Miletus, calls for them, and um, after probably a two-day journey, they're here listening to, uh, actually four days, two days up to get them and two days back. Um, So they're finally here, and and Paul is talking to them in Acts chapter 20. And last week we saw that, you know, Paul kind of started out by explaining to them or, or reminding them, you know, basically how he just expended his life for them, you know, what a Christian leader is. And he modeled that. Um, by his humble servants, uh, his persistent engagement in the lives of the Ephesians there. Not only their lives to disciple them, but also for those that are outside of Christ, that he didn't hold back the gospel from those who needed it. And that's kind of what we, we saw, that picture. And so Paul's going to kind of turn and then start giving some advice and things that, you know, you know what his, he feels like his mission is now, how he poured into them and then now things are going to turn a little bit. And as we kind of think about this, you know, Paul just continued to persevere no matter what through difficulties, through jailings, through beatings, through stonings, shipwrecks. You know, these things are mentioned in, in 2 Corinthians, uh, how Paul just kind of lays it out, like all the things that he's endured physically. And we see like a lot of that in Acts as he's going from one place to another. Um, and so we're going to see that kind of heart come out in this next section in uh, Acts chapter 20, starting in verse um, 22. As Before we get to that, I want to ask you guys, um, what causes you to keep pushing forward, um, to keep doing something when you want to give up? What is it that, you know, has... I mean, maybe you can even look to think, you know, New Year's resolutions, and you're like, oh, maybe I'm not the best one to answer this. Um, but there's probably something in our lives that, you know, that we just wanted to be like, I'm done with this. And then the Lord says, you know what, you're not done yet. Um, does anyone have any, any of those things that, you know, whether it is something you're still continuing your New Year's resolution, whether it's something that you said, I want to engage in, but what are things that keep you going to not give up? What's that? So fear, fear of starting over again. That is definitely, definitely a true, right? You know, if you say, if anything, you know, I have, uh, I've been working at this for three weeks now. You know, if I start over, it's three weeks back. If I've been working at it for six months, you know, the further you go, the longer that is. And so sometimes that can be a good habit to kind of continue to move forward. Um, if something's not ingrained as a habit, to not want to start back over. All right, what else? What are other things that keep you motivated to to keep pressing forward? What's that? It'll be worth it in the end. What do you mean? What do you mean? What's that? So a little pain in now is is a big gain later. So there's some sort of reward uh, that you'll see at the end. <laughs> Would you say, Phil, cost-benefit analysis? Yes. <laughs> That's always true. Although I don't think we always do that. Usually the cost-benefit is like, yeah, you know. What harm could it do, right? Um, sometimes. I think of that with the bowl of ice cream. What would you say? Cost-benefit analysis. Uh, yeah, let's, let's go there. Um, and you don't have to be personal, and I'm not saying go to your marriage, but what, what, are, things where, what are things that like, you know, keep, 
keep you moving forward. You know, there's, I mean, there's always, you know, in your vows for better or for worse. There's probably been worse times. Um, and so what keeps you, what keeps you kind of encouraged and, and moving forward? What's that? The joy in the journey. What do you, what do you mean by that? Okay, so so an obedience to to what God has for you. Yes. Okay, um, and to know even though you might be in a difficult time, and it, those those worst times could be nothing of you know your own own doing, but sometimes uh, with any relationship, they could be definitely your own doing, which is causing things to be worse. Um, what are you know some other things that if I think about even in a marriage, you know what you know to, why why do you even uh, when you say for better or for worse, why do we even make those declarations? Because it's going to come, right? And so you're starting off in the beginning before things get better or maybe things get worse that you're saying, I'm going to continue to persevere. The whole thing about a vow is just to say, I know these things are coming, but I promise that we're going to keep going through it together knowing that situations change, circumstances will change. And so that could be one thing too, to know, you know what uh, the promise that you made to keep you you know, moving forward. And, and I, I feel like, you know, you could probably think about things in, in a lot of times, you know, sometimes you feel like, I just want to quit my job. You know, why don't you quit your job? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that cost-benefit analysis, like, if I quit my job, then, you know, I, I, won't have, I won't have money. Or if I quit my job, you know, there could be other things at stake. Um, things are easier to quit uh, maybe when you're younger, um, you know, when... Uh, when, <laughs> when you don't have so much responsibility, you know, easier to quit my job maybe when I was 23 than, you know, uh, 40 than, you know, having kids and a wife and house and, you know, more responsibility. There's just, there is probably more, more you feel like financially to lose, but you also know that this responsibility that the Lord has placed upon you um, in order to keep moving forward. And I'll say there's, there's definitely times that, you know, um, in different, different circumstances in life that, you know, I felt that I wanted to quit. And there are even times that I've told the Lord, Lord, I, you know, I'm going to quit this thing. Uh, I, I'm just, I'm going to stop, I'm going to stop doing it. And at that moment, I feel like the Lord is, <laughs> when I've kind of said, you know what, maybe I just need to, to give this up. Um, uh, the Lord has said, you know, no, you need to keep moving forward. Has anyone ever felt like that? That there's something in your life that the Lord has just said, you know what, you got to keep moving forward. Whether it's pointing you back to those things that we talked about, or just kind of this, uh, sense inside that the Lord has kind of placed upon you that brings you back to why he's calling you to whatever it is that he's calling you. And that's what we're going to see here, what Paul is, uh, is going to get at, that we see uh, Paul's compulsion in verses 22 uh, through 27 uh, in Acts chapter 20. So let's read that and then we'll kind of unpack it for a little bit. So Paul's compulsion is to kind of press on in verse 22 says, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel 
of God. So, where do we see that Paul is heading? Okay, so Paul is heading out to Jerusalem. Now remember, he just said, you know, don't remember all the things that I did, I taught, I declared, um, you know, uh, I shared with you, I, I was of service to you, I lived amongst you, and we kind of unpacked all of that last week. And so now he's saying, but now I'm heading somewhere. And he says, I'm heading to Jerusalem. Now what is prompting him going to Jerusalem? What's that? He wants to go for there for the feast. He does want to get there by uh, the Feast of the Pentecost, okay? But in uh, verse 22, what does he say is the motivation that is compelling him to move forward? Yeah. And he says that I am constrained by the Spirit. And so we would see, you know, that when he talks about the Spirit, sometimes uh, Luke will use the term his Spirit when he kind of has more of a... you know, an internal feeling. But this is coming from the, the, the external side. I'm constrained by the Spirit, uh, meaning the Holy Spirit, in order to go to Jerusalem. Now, we've kind of talked about this. Luke doesn't, again, share why he's going to Jerusalem. Uh, as Zach had mentioned, he is going, wants to make it there by Pentecost. Earlier, he had said that he wanted to be in Ephesus by Pentecost, uh, but plans had changed. Now, what is he likely doing? Why is he going to Jerusalem? Well, we see that he had a Nazarite vow in the last journey, which compelled him to go back then. We don't see him, uh, we don't see him get a Nazarite vow until he actually gets there uh, to pay, to, to, that he will take a vow. He will go there, and he'll, he'll, um, he'll complete that when he gets there. So uh, we'll hold off on, on that right now. But right now we don't see anything that is, is compelling him, although it's possible. Luke just doesn't give that, that indication, which he did on the second missionary journey, that he had shaved his head and needed to get there by a certain time in order to fulfill his vow, and that, that was to be there by, by Pentecost. In this case, um, Luke doesn't give us any indication. If we go to 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and we've mentioned this in the past, that what is Paul bringing along with him? Yeah, so he's bringing a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. When he went to, first, you know, when he, he wrote in First Corinthians, you know, about setting money aside. In Second Corinthians, he's saying, "Hey, I'm coming. I want to make sure you have that money set aside." Some of the other churches have already, uh, you know, donated, and so I, I don't want you to to be left, you know, unaware that when I come, I'm going to bring this. He also, we see that there's a uh, whole group of people that are going along with him. Um, Luke doesn't again indicate why. And even when he gets to Jerusalem, we don't see him, you know, and then Paul gives this, you know, offering to the saints. We don't, we don't see, actually see any of that. We just have to infer what's going on. Uh, but he wants to make it there by Pentecost, presumably to, to bring, bring this uh, to the church by then. Again, we don't know why at that time or what is motivating him, except that the Holy Spirit is constraining him in order to to go to Jerusalem, to, to compel him to move to Jerusalem. And so we see this prompting started back in Acts chapter 19, uh, verse 21, that um, Paul says, let me turn there real quick. Paul says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And so it's kind of interesting, we'll see how that develops a little bit later, that Paul wants to go and see the churches, um, of the, the previous churches that he visited in Macedonia and Greece, make his way back to Jerusalem, and then set out on another journey to Rome. 
It's kind of a foreshadowing uh, that we will see him actually make that journey to Rome, but unlike probably what he anticipated on how he was going to get there. So what does Paul know about what will happen in Jerusalem? Okay, yeah, so verse 22, he, he says explicitly, like, I, I don't know what's going to happen to me there, except, right, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So, um, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know that prison is, could be likely, and afflictions could be likely. Um, how much of a motivating factor would that be? Or maybe even demotivating, you know, in order to go somewhere or do something, Right. For most of us, it might even actually like dissuade us from going somewhere or doing something. <clears throat> and for Paul, I mean, it's not, he's not any different, right? There are times that, again, at certain cities, you could tell that the next step in, you know, in Ephesus, especially the last time we saw there, the next step was to bring him in front of the proconsuls, which could have been imprisonment. So Paul said, I'm going to leave. Um, and then other places where in Corinth uh, some things were happening, he's like, I think it's time for me to leave. And so whether it's based on the church or his imprisonment specifically, he felt like you know, he tries to avoid conflict and confrontation, not only for what it means for himself, but what it would mean for the church as well. And so we'll see a lot of conflict will actually happen uh, as in a result to uh, his arrest um, that we'll see in the future. But that's all he knows. So all I know is I'm going there, but I'm constrained and compelled by the Holy Spirit. He needs that grounding um, by the Holy Spirit to kind of keep pushing him forward. And he can rest assured that, you know, imprisonment and afflictions, those aren't actually a problem for him, because why? Yeah, exactly. So Jesus, you know, when he first was called, you know, that, that he told um, Ananias before he, you know, kind of laid hands on him that he, he's going to see how much he's going to suffer for my name's sake. And so Paul just knows, and if you read some of the letters while he's in imprisonment, that he actually sees it as joy um, and part of the next set phase of his ministry, no matter where he's at. We all already saw that when he was in Philippi and was arrested that he and Silas were singing in jail and then were able to uh, you know, share the gospel with uh, the Philippian jailer um, as a result of that imprisonment. Well, and an earthquake happened as well. But uh, we see that, you know, again, he's able to be put in situ- certain situations to reach out to certain people. So he's, though, pushed to go forward, not knowing what's going to happen, but I do know something bad's going to happen. <laughs> I-, I have that feeling that something bad is going to happen. And so he kind of then clarifies, you know, what he means by that or, you know, why it's okay. Um, because he says that I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. So what is that? What does he mean by that? Cost benefit analysis. Cost, cost benefit analysis. It always comes back to a cost benefit analysis. Um, so, you know, I mean, but, but seriously, if, if somebody said that, use that language, you might think like this person's suicidal. Right. You know, this person like, you know, is going to go somewhere. They're not thinking rationally. They're not thinking, you know, about their own safety, about what, you know, what is, you know, what we think that they should value. But why, why does not, you know, why is that, why does Paul say that? That he doesn't see his, his life as any value for his own sake. What does he mean by that? Okay. His ministry is more value to him. And why is that? 
It's from the Lord, yeah. And so remember that language that he said is when he served them, that he was a slave to them. And it's always the language that he uses, right? As a slave, he is bound to his master Jesus to do whatever Jesus feels, um, you know, feels that it is compelling him to move forward. And so if it's the Holy Spirit that says, keep going, but afflictions are coming, I'm just giving you a readiness. I'm giving you a preparedness to not be caught blindsided and to go expecting these things to happen. Um, His goal, when he writes to to, uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, remember when he he writes 2 Timothy, he's in prison. And this time, though, um, he's had several imprisonments. But when he's writing from 2 Timothy, this time he feels like his life is is coming to an end. In the past, he thought, you know, I'm probably going to get out of this, you know, and and he's kind of got a different, um, different outlook. And so when he's speaking to Timothy, he's, he's saying that I hope that at the end I fought the good fight and that I have finished the race. And that is the language that Paul uses to kind of talk about the goal that he has in mind, is to finish the race. Now, he doesn't know how, how long this race is. It's kind of one of those marathons that you get over the hill and then you're like, oh, I guess the finish line's a little bit further. And so for him, though, he just knows that's the next step. And we're actually going to find that he's going to get clarity about what these afflictions look like as he goes further to test him to see, you know, how he will respond. And he continues to respond that I need to push ahead. So he's pressing on. And so um, what does he tell, what does Paul tell the Ephesians about their visit together? So what does he kind of reveal to them that he's kind of getting this feeling about this time that he's spending with the Ephesians? Yeah, verse 25 And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And so he's saying, like, I I needed to stop by. I needed to say something to you because I don't think I'm going to see you guys again. And this is, this is uh, again, it's, it's almost with the language that he says, I know that none of you whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Now, when he writes to, uh, in 2 Timothy, or actually in 1 Timothy, that he, he says that he went through Macedonia. He's writing to Timothy, um, who's in Ephesus. We'll talk about that a little bit in, in a little bit. Um, so it's likely that he stopped in Ephesus at some time in the future, um, but... Perhaps he didn't see them, and perhaps the, the men he's talking to he won't see again, or perhaps his inclination was wrong in this aspect of what it is. But right now, in this moment, he's saying, I think this is the end for, um, not his, for his life, but I just don't think I'm going to make it to see you again. Because again, whatever awaits me, imprisonment, afflictions, I don't know if I'm going to make it out. Um, it could be a life imprisonment, it could be something you know, that is more drastic than that. And so... Um, and so what, is there anything that kind of, you know, points to why he may be thinking about this? Do you guys remember what happened when he was leaving Corinth? Uh, you know, the last chapter kind of, kind of changed some plans about making his way to Jerusalem. you guys remember that? Yeah, so he was, he was uh, going to go back to Jerusalem, go back by boat, but the, the Jews were plotting to kill him. And so he changed his course, went up through, uh, through the land, and then, then went across the sea on a different route um, because he didn't want to be on a boat with Jews that wanted him dead, which would, that boat would have been full of Jews heading over for the Passover around that time. And so, um, so he's already kind of getting these incl- inclinations that, like, you know, people are plotting to have me killed. Um, this isn't the first time, and again, this won't be the last time that we're going to see this, but that's on his radar 
Um, and so we'll see later that Jews from Asia, kind of a different area, are going to cause him trouble later in Jerusalem. And so, um, again, that's kind of been placed upon his spirit about what he's thinking. So uh, he finishes up and he says, um, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Now why do you think he says that? Why does he say that he is innocent of the blood of all? Okay. Well, actually, we'll get to the Washman a little bit later, but so that's good, a good tie-in. But also, um, you know, the Jews, when uh, Pilate was ready to release Jesus, they, you know, he said, this man has done nothing, and they, they said, his blood be upon us and our descendants. Mm-hmm. And then when Paul was in Corinth and got rough treatment from the Jews, he said, you know, from now on, I go to the Gentiles, and your blood is on your own heads. But I think what he's really saying is, you know, I didn't sugarcoat the gospel. I, I gave you everything, both barrels, you know, full on, and I'm not, I haven't withheld anything from you. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and he says that in verse 27, I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I mean, it's one thing, you know, he spent, again, he spent almost three years in Ephesus, and it says probably for two, two of that was, you know, teaching in the hall of Tyrannus, again, daily, you know, speaking to them and teaching them. And so he didn't shrink back from, from declaring the whole counsel of God. If there's anything, you know, maybe if you have an encounter with somebody, you know, and after you've met with them, you might have thought, oh, I should have said this, or I should have shared this aspect. You know, Paul said, I didn't shrink back from declaring any of that to you. That's one thing, you know, um, you know when, when you're reading through the entire Bible, you know, if, if you cherry pick different passages that you wanted to read or just went to your, kind of your favorites, right, you're not getting the whole counsel of God. And so Paul is able to stand back and say, I gave it all to you. And so for us, you know, even as a church, that's kind of why we say that we want to preach, you know, verse by verse through different letters um, and different, different books of the Bible is because, you know, we can make sure that the whole counsel of God is being preached as much as we can, right? You know, there's a lot to go through from Old Testament to New Testament um, to declare to you. But that's kind of Paul felt he had a responsibility to them. But he can confidently say, I'm innocent of any blood, meaning his responsibility to them, that he can leave them, not see them again, but be okay. And say, you know what, I didn't hold back anything, I taught you everything that I know, and that you guys are now equipped to take on the mission that God has left you when I move forward, right? Because Paul has been there for several years. It's almost an indication, well, not an indication, but it could almost be that, that aspect that they're relying on Paul for all of their ministry needs. We don't see any of that actually occurring, but for Paul talking to the leaders of the church, he's saying, I may not see you again, but good, guess what? You're equipped to take over, right? You know, I know I was the guy that was going house to house, you know, not shrinking back from declaring anything that was profitable, going out and preaching to Jews, going out and preaching to Gentiles, all of those things. But now this is your ministry, this is your church, and you guys are left in good hands. And so we'll see that's kind of where Paul turns to next. 
And so as we kind of you know, see like Paul's heart and, and his example, we see him as being a model for them to follow. Um, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul would say that, I want you to imitate me as I imitate Christ. When he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says, And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And that Paul's um, indication about what he did was to help prepare them so that they could prepare others to take on this task of leading the church. And so now we turn to Paul's warning. And we won't get all, through all of this because we're going to kind of pause and, and look at kind of specifics of what Paul is, is uh, including. But Paul's warning to them is to watch out. So verse 28 says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, so let's kind of go through this, this verse real quick. What, what caution does Paul give to them? So he looks at his own, own example. He says, I may not see you again, and now this is kind of like what I want you to, to take back with you and to you know, have as kind of maybe some marching orders to think about as I leave you. And so what does he say? What, is, what, does, he, what does he caution them with? Okay, so I want you, right, to watch yourselves, right? That's the first thing. I want you to pay attention to yourselves and to what What else? Okay, so, yeah, so two things I want, I want you to think about, right? To watch yourselves, why do you think he says that? Okay. And what else? As them being leadership, what do they need to what do they need to always constantly be monitoring? Yeah. I mean that's 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 one of those things that just because they're the leaders of the church doesn't mean they're done with self-examination, right? And that's what really Paul is saying. I want you to continue to examine yourselves. I mean, he'll say that in other letters to the church in general to to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I think that's the indication is I want you to look at yourself, to examine yourself and to make sure, right? And we're we're actually going to see that you know, there are issues that will pop up. So I want you to pay attention to yourselves, to watch out for yourselves, to guard yourselves, to make sure your, your own hearts are pure in what you are doing, and then also to oversee the flock. Now, what is the flock? Right, yeah, so the church, right? The language of, of sheep, right? And that they are shepherds over the church, but really being under shepherds of Jesus Christ being kind of the chief shepherd over his church. And so that's kind of where they, you know, what their, what their, uh, their job is, their role is. And so Paul gives that caution. I want you to, to watch out. Um, so what term does Paul give and why do you think that is for, for what their role is? Or how are they are to exhibit that role? What, is, how, what does he describe them as? Yeah, so he describes them as overseers, right? That's, that's what your role is inside the church. And so, interesting that you guys brought up that, that term of a watchman. And so, that, the word overseer is, you know, seeing over, right? And if you're seeing over something, right, it's kind of seeing over a, like a, a flock, 
but over a wall, over something like that, and watching over something. So they're watching over something specifically. And that's, that's Old Testament language of a particular position, not only the shepherd kind of role of overseeing a flock, but also a watchman. And a watchman was to, what, what was the job of a watchman? If you could probably think about that, that terminology. Alert to danger. Alert to danger. Yeah, what kind of danger do you think that like, they were alerting people to? What's, what's the typical danger that, that maybe... Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Usually it was, it was from some outside enemy. And so there's a couple places that we see this. Uh, Psalm 127, uh, verse 1, uh, Solomon writes, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build, and labor, uh, build it in labor in vain. You know, so you've probably heard that, that term, um, sometimes with a uh, church building. Um, that those verses are used, right? Unless, unless, if you try to build it in your own strength, right, you're building it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Okay, so what, what does that indicate? Yeah, so, so yeah, if, if you are pursuing the things that the Lord isn't pursuing, or vice versa, right? The Lord is going to be against you. You're probably watching over the wrong thing. I think it's that kind of guarding your own heart, guarding yourself, making sure that you're aligned with what God desires. Um, and then you can then look out for what, uh, what God is doing amongst the flock. And so that language is picked up in Ezekiel and uh, in a couple different places, um, Ezekiel 3 and also picked up in Ezekiel um, 33. So we'll, uh, we'll look at Ezekiel in chapter 3. Um, so, verse 16. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, so he's speaking to Ezekiel, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. This is, again, verse 17 in uh, Ezekiel 3. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. So this watchman is speaking the words of God to the people. Um, If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. So you see kind of that same language that Paul has, right? That that blood is, is on his hands. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. And so that you kind of have that indication that the watchman is, is to kind of look out for um, invaders, right? But in this case, he's this watchman, you know, that, that is Ezekiel, that God is saying, I want you to declare this to the people for their own good. And if you tell, if you hold back from it, then I hold you responsible. So that's a huge responsibility that's applied as, a, as kind of this idea of an overseer that we see for the church. But even the same thing that the overseer um, is, if that 
not only they have the responsibility to turn people away from sin uh, and to warn them, but also to turn towards righteousness as well. And so you kind of get that language that Paul picks up um, when he uses that term overseer, similar to what the, the watchman was um, in the Old Testament. And again, had a practical responsibility to just watch out, you know, to make sure everything was okay. Um, and so going back, though, to Acts chapter 20, um, what was the overseer's responsibility? Yeah, so to care for the church of God. Now, whose church is it? Right, so it's God's church, not their church, right? And so they've been entrusted this responsibility, just as the king would entrust the responsibility to the watchman to make sure that the, the gates are secure or th- that invaders are not coming in, that Christ has given that responsibility to uh, the overseers to care for the church of God. And who has qualified them for this task? What's that? God, specifically though, what does he say? Yeah, the Holy Spirit, right? And so um, we see that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and made you for this task. So what do you think that indicates? That the Holy Spirit has made you for this, uh, made, you know, has, has made you overseers. How can we interpret that? Choice. What's that? Choice. Okay. It's divine choice. Okay. So predestined. Um, so I think that's one way that you could think about it. When you look at uh, Romans um, 15, when he talks about government officials um, and uh, you know, that the Lord has placed whoever over you in whatever government capacity. Uh, really, and when you look at it that way, that you could say either whoever is good or bad in the position, that that position has been ordained by God. So that's maybe one way that you could understand this. Um, but more specifically... Uh, it is only by the Holy Spirit that the man can do this job. I think that's a, probably a better indication um, about how to, how to understand this. Although it's true that no matter who you have as your, as your elder or who you have as a leader over you, that you are to respect them, whether it is the language that Paul gives as um, master and slave or government official um, or uh, elder in the church, that um, you are to uh, acknowledge them in the role that they've been given, but it is the Holy Spirit that is, has made them overseers. And I think the indication that without the Holy Spirit, the, an elder cannot do his job effectively. And then he finally, finally says, you know, that it is the church that God bought by his blood, that was, was bought by the blood of um, that he obtained with his own blood. So why does, he, why does he add that in there? Why do you think that he mentions that, that the church was bought by his own blood? Okay, good, yeah. So if, if uh, and, and when he says that God obtained with his own blood, what, is he, what, what specifically, whose own blood was it? Jesus, okay, so to be clear, it's Jesus' own blood, right, and it's God's Son, and that through that sacrifice... Um, that it is a high honor, and again, that honor has been now bestowed to you to take care of the church. And so Paul leaves them with kind of language that will, will make them understand that what he's about to say next, which we won't get to this week, um, is kind of a high, high calling for what they have uh, been asked to do. And so if you kind of note, even in this verse, you know, sometimes we think, you know, why do we believe in a trinity? I mean, right here, 
Um, you have Trinitarian language, right? Is that the Holy Spirit made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. We know that that blood was Jesus Christ's blood, and so Jesus, by extension, is God. And so all of these, all aspects of the Trinity are here in Paul's warning and Paul's kind of call to them. And so I really I want to quickly, you know, with the last few minutes that we have, just go and think about, and especially, you know, now that we're in, uh, we're in February, which is kind of Elder Nomination Month, is to think, you know, what, what does Scripture say about elders? And so there's a couple places that we can go. Let's go to 1 Timothy 3. I just want to kind of quickly kind of go through uh, the, the requirements or the things that Paul is telling Timothy um, about you know, what it means to be an elder, to be an overseer, and the type of person that God is looking for. Now, when Paul is writing to Timothy, Timothy is in Ephesus, interestingly. Um, it's a few years after he's meeting with them here, and, uh, you know, after, after the stopover. And so we see kind of some of the things that Paul is, is uh, mentioning. So, um, first, he says in chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, same language, same word, he desires a noble task. And so the first thing is that this person desires the job. And so not that it's reluctantly given, like, hey, do you want to do it? I guess so. Um, that there should be some in, internal desire, but that also it's a good job. You know, that he uses that word. Uh, it's kind of translated as noble, but just means it's a good task that this person has been asked to do. Probably depending on what church, if you're made an elder, you know, if, uh, if it's the church in Corinth, which had a lot of problems, hey, we want you to be elder. It's like, I'm stepping into a lot of, <laughs> a lot of problems here. Um, but he's saying that's a good task. But, you know, for the most, most part, um, you know, through the ups and downs, most of the churches were, uh, had a lot of good, you know, but mixed in there were some, of the, some difficulties that came with the position. Um, next, verse 2, that uh, it must be above reproach, um, not able to be held, meaning there is no accusation, uh, no, not, not able to be held to a standard of justice, and essentially that no accusation from others can be given on this person. So if somebody is mired in some sort of scandal or issue, probably don't want them to be an elder. Why? Because they're going to bring that along with them, and then there's going to be mistrust um, either from the, those that are under the leaders um, or the, amongst the leaders themselves. And so that's kind of the first qualification. Second, husband of one wife. It's a, a, a translated one-woman man, meaning this person's a devoted husband. And again, we could spend a whole you know, 45, 50 minutes kind of unpacking this, and other people have. But I just want to quickly go through them so we have in our mind kind of the big picture of what Paul was getting at. Um, next, sober-minded. Uh, meaning temperate in regards to alcohol. So specifically, um, that term meaning alcohol, meaning not indulging too much into alcohol. Or it could also be translated and looked at as temperate in regard to one's own conduct. Um, Specifically, though, it is a reverse in regards to alcohol, but it can be translated as uh, being sober-minded, not, again, indulging uh, or being... um, uh, indulged in alcohol and the, the dull thinking that comes along with that. And so the, the elder knows his limits and is able to exercise his limits accordingly, um, knows himself and is able to kind of exercise that. The next word was similar is self-controlled, um, sometimes translated as prudent. You know, specifically, it's control over one's self, um, actions and thinking and words kind of all kind of 
incorporate in there. Uh, next is respectable, meaning the word is orderly. So kind of keeping, keeping your house in order, keeping your life in order, um, and thereby other people seeing that and, and you know, uh, understanding that that person kind of takes care uh, of his own affairs. Uh, next is hospitable. Uh, or a specifically translated love of strangers, so they have an open home to others, not closed off uh, to others. Next is able to teach. Um, when Paul speaks to Timothy in 2 Timothy as a pastor, he says that, you know, that is one requirement that I have to you, teaching and to labor amongst the people. And so that, is, uh, that has that responsibility, able to teach. Um, interestingly, you know, it, it, again, it's it could be in a public forum, but able to speak to others and teach them and walk them through Scripture ably is uh, kind of the indication. But typically you have an outward speaking role um, in this uh, as, as thought of. Not a drunkard, so somebody who is not addicted to wine. That's something that uh, any substance that controls them. Um, not violent, so not a giver of blows. Someone who is explosive. Um, who, with enough prodding, kind of loses their temper. Um, so that's, again, not to be like that. The next word is gentle, meaning tolerant or yielding. Um, uh, BDAG, which is kind of a, um, you know, a lexicon that, that uh, translates just different words, is, uh, gives this um, definition, not insisting on every right of letter or law or custom. So, in that sense, yielding um, to uh, others um, when there is a question of, you know, how to proceed. And so, again, gentle, but tolerant or yielding, able to make concessions is, uh, is another way to think about that. Not quarrelsome, so one who does not fight or dispute, whose who's, uh, character is not, you know, brought up along with those terms. Not a lover of money, so that does not compel them. Um, so they're not always pulled uh, away from dealing with the church, but, you know, with money matters. So that's something that is to qualify them as not a lover of money. Manages their household well, so leads the house well is the, the idea there. Um, their family, the household, whatever it is, kind of keeping that in order. Keeping children submissive, able to exercise authority and control over your kids. Um, not a recent convert, so somebody who has not just come to faith. Um, they might be older, you know, sometimes we think about that as, as elder qualification, um, but it means that they are more seasoned and not, uh, again, recent to the faith. And then thought of, thought of well by outsiders, so they have a good reputation outside of the church. Again, I know that was kind of a blitzkrieg of like terms and thoughts, you know, of what, you know, what that encompasses, but what are some things that you can kind of pull back and step back and say, like, overall, what are some, some kind of descriptions that you would say, you know, describe an elder. If you kind of boil it down to like two or three basic elements. Okay, self-discipline. Okay, yeah. Knows yourself, knows your limits, able to control oneself in a whole a bunch of areas. Whether it's, it's you know, and, and Paul gives all these descriptions because it's like, oh yeah, you know, I guess you're disciplined in that area, but not that area. And so... To maintain discipline. Now, why is self-discipline a good qualification? Because you're watchful of yourself and you recognize that you have failings. Okay. And you're dependent on God. Okay. Leading by example. Okay, leading by example. Okay. I think that's a good one. Anything else? 
Humility? Okay. Yeah, I think all, I think all these terms would, uh, would, would be well. And not only respected from those inside the church, but respected from those outside the church. And all that has to do with the fact that if you're going to lead and you're going to watch over others, you need to try to minimize conflict amongst yourselves. I'm not saying that any conflict is bad, but know when to yield, know when to press forward, know when to hold back, know your own um, misgivings uh, in order to shepherd you know, that. And what are you really trying to guard against? And I think it's the opposite of what we heard of humility. What are you trying to guard against? Pride. Yeah. And I think that's probably the biggest area that, that the more, you know, maybe especially men, but I would say people in general, that uh, rise up in a place of leadership is that pride can kind of overtake, especially over time. And you see that in instances all over, uh, whether it is in the church or just in historic areas, um, that pride can creep in. And this, these are ways that, to start out with, we want to make sure that that is being minimized. And so, why do you think, Paul, why do you think Timothy um, is given recommendation to appoint elders if there are already elders here? It's only a couple years after Paul is meeting with these elders in Ephesus. So it's only a couple years that he writes this letter to Timothy and says, here are some qualifications for an elder. So why do you think that, why do you think Paul would write that? Elders die. Okay. <laughs> elders die. That is, that is true. There are, <laughs> true, true. So, it's possible some elders have passed on. Some elders might have what? Moved on, they might have strayed, okay? We will see that specifically, that Paul addresses specific, uh, specific men, um, probably in a place of leadership. We don't know if they're an elder or not, um, but that he has to say. And, and then the other thing is just, if somebody is qualified, well, then recognize them to, to add to the, the elders. But during that time, you know, people died, people moved, um, people strayed. Uh, that, was, that was part of it as well. Some people, you know, and because of that, some people disqualify themselves, um, and so we see some of those things. Yeah, and there's no there's no number, right? There's no magic number. It's just here's the qualifications. It's probably better to have more leaders, right, um, than not. We saw that early on in Acts when there was you know only the few apostles and thousands of people that ministries were being neglected, and so you see some practical matters now. What do we know about the church of, in Ephesus? Well, here, you know, this is about 60 to 62, uh, actually maybe about 60. Paul would write to the Ephesians in, in his letter to the Ephesians when he was jailed, so 60 to 62, somewhere in that range. He'll write 1 Timothy 62 to 64, so only a couple years later. From, so the letter to Ephesus was pretty positive, not many negatives. 1 Timothy, hey, I want you to watch out for some of these issues. I want you to see some of these difficulties that are coming. 2 Timothy, he says the same thing. There are people that have, you know, I was dealing with in 1 Timothy that, you know, have now like gone astray in 2 Timothy. And then within 30 years, he's being, you know, the church in Ephesus is being rebuked, rebuked um, in, in Revelations. And so we know that, uh, that we see even with leadership, you know, they always have to watch themselves as they watch the flock because there will be issues that will pop up inside the flock. We'll get to that actually next week when Paul's warning kind of continues, but he kind of sets that tone with, you know, who, what your responsibility is, what your job is, what your role is. 
And then the things I'm going to share with you, hopefully you'll be on the lookout for some of these things. And so the Lord has made the elders overseers over his flock in Ephesus, and the role is to serve the people of God, to protect them from spiritual dangers, and to promote their spiritual growth, just as Paul did with them. And so we'll see, again, that a little bit more, that protection side, um, as we look at this passage a little bit later, not next week, but the week after.